And whenever you elevate anything, whether it's the Mosaic law or anything else, when you elevate it such that it's faith in Christ plus doing these laws, or it's doing these laws instead of faith in Christ, then that's a false gospel that can save no one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Wayne Baxter. Dr. Baxter serves as Professor of New Testament and Greek at Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, where he has been since 2012. Prior to his time in the academy, Dr. Baxter spent 10 years in pastoral ministry in Windsor, Ottawa, and Mississauga. Dr. Baxter, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for helping us out. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. Dr. Baxter, when we come to Paul's letter to the Philippians, where do we find ourselves in the Bible? What are its historical and canonical contexts? So canonically speaking, uh, in the New Testament, you have the Gospels, obviously, that come first because they're dealing with the life of Jesus. Acts comes after that because it's the successors to Jesus. They're picking up the ministry where he left off. Uh, And then the letters are grouped together. And within the letters, Paul's letters come first because he wrote most of the letters of the New Testament. And they are ordered not according to date, but according to size. So according to Greek word count, because they're originally written in Greek, Romans is the biggest that comes first, then 1 Corinthians, because it's the next biggest, and so on and so forth. So then when you get to Philippians, so Philippians is a little bit smaller than Ephesians, so it comes after Ephesians. It's a little bit bigger than Colossians, so it comes before and ahead of Colossians. So canonically, that's what we're looking at. Historically, historical context, as I read Philippians and kind of did some study on Philippians, there's really four reasons why Paul writes this letter. Um, the first reason is that it's a thank you letter, right? And that comes at the end. He has this uh, very pretty lengthy thank you to the church. Paul, he was a tent maker. That was his trade, right? A leather worker, a tanner. And so when he would go and evangelize, go to different cities, just like today, like you've got bills to pay. You got to pay rent. You got to get food on the table, that kind of thing. And so he would apply his trade. Uh, Acts 18 talks about him and Priscilla and Aquila doing their thing. And so by doing that, he's able to go into cities, make a living and preach and teach the gospel, except um, you can only do it basically evenings and weekends, so to speak. Right. But every now and again, he would forward a call uh, to his churches, those churches that he planted, that he started a call for finances, for subsidy. And they would give him money such that he wouldn't have to fall back on his trade and, and that money could be used to pay the bills so that he could spend all his time, his nine to five, if you will, and evenings and weekends preaching and teaching the gospel. One particular occasion, and when you read the letters and Acts, you see this, that he put forward a call to his churches, but for some reason, none of them stepped up to the pump to help him. Only one church did. That was the Philippians. And that really touched Paul. And so Paul writes this letter as a thank you for their gift. Another reason he writes the letter is because it's kind of a missions update, if you will. Like he's He's writing in prison. This is one of his prison epistles. So he's writing in prison because he's been incarcerated for preaching the gospel, first century Roman Empire, which is not a good position to be in, right? Like it kind of, you end up dead oftentimes for doing that. So he's imprisoned and uh, he started this church probably about a decade earlier than the letter. 
So by starting planting this church, he is their spiritual father. And so his kids are worried about him because they know he's in prison. And so he writes to kind of update them as to, so this is what's going on with me uh, in prison. Uh, another reason is he's addressing the false teaching that we'll get to. That's kind of chapter three. This false teaching is emphasizing uh, adherence to the Mosaic law over and against faith in Jesus. And he also writes this letter to address disunity that's going on in the church. We're going to talk about that in a bit as well. So the church sends Epaphroditus, chapter two, sends him, this church member, to go to Paul uh, and to give him their gift to uh, have him soldier alongside in the enterprise of the gospel, also to update him on, on what's been going on in the church. And the church is hoping that Paul will send back with Epaphroditus, Timothy, again, that's chapter two, but Paul says, I, I can't, I can't send Timothy right now. I need him. And so he sends Epaphroditus back, but not empty handed, but he sends him back with a divinely revealed, divinely inspired and inerrant letter to the church. So that's the historical context and the canonical context. That's great. Now, before we get into some of the details of the letter, is there a discernible structure to the book that can help us get our mind around the whole? Yeah, definitely. As I read this letter, I kind of break it down like this. Like the first 11 chapters is the introduction, right? Where Paul expresses his thanksgiving of the church and, and actually prays for the church. And then 112 to 26, that's kind of his missions update. He's just letting them know this is what's going on with me. Uh, in prison. And then 127 to 230, that's kind of the center of this letter. That's his exhortation to unity. Uh, and then 31 to 41, he starts to address the false teaching uh, that's invading the church. Uh, 42 to 9 are the final exhortations to unity. Uh, and then 410 to 19 is the, his thanksgiving to the church for their gift to him. And then the final four verses, 20 to 23, are his closing remarks. So that's how I would break it down. Now, as you talked about the context of the letter, you mentioned that Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner. We learn that in 1 verse 7, facing death, 1 verse 21. And yet the tone of the book is one of joy and rejoicing. So for Paul, Dr. Baxter, how do these two realities not contradict one another? And how is his perspective instructive for believers today who face discomfort, trials, pain, and death? Yeah, great question. So the thing is, it's not just that uh, Paul is joyful, but we have to ask, why is it that he's so joyful? Why is it that he rejoices the way he does? And when you drill down into uh, the joy and rejoicing, those terms that appear in the gospel, you kind of see four things at work. Uh, Paul rejoices in God's sanctificational work in other believers. That's kind of the early chapter one towards the end of chapter one. Like God, Paul is rejoicing that God is at work in other believers, hmm. affecting sanctification, right? Sanctification is becoming like Christ. And so he rejoices in the fact that God is, right, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So he, is, he rejoices in the fact that God is transforming these believers that he first used, was used by God to bring them to faith. He, God is transforming them and making them more like Jesus. I mean, even as a pastor, right, and as a Christian layperson, when you see somebody start to grow in their faith. It, it ought to excite you like, wow, you've changed so much. God is so good. The second thing that we see here in, in Paul's rejoicing is that he rejoices in God's sovereign work through ill-motivated ministry. That's kind of the middle of chapter one, that there are people there who are preaching the gospel, 
and they are preaching. It is the gospel as opposed to chapter three, where it's not the gospel. They're preaching the gospel, but they're, they're doing it out of ill motives. They're doing it to kind of stick to Paul because Paul's in prison and they're rivals and they want to basically outstrip him um, in terms of like making disciples and all that kind of stuff. And Paul rejoices because you know what? It's the gospel. People are getting saved. So he's able to rejoice despite them doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. The fact that they are preaching the gospel is a cause for him to rejoice. And so God has sovereignly worked despite their ill motivations. And he rejoices in that. He rejoices in the opportunity to serve believers uh, for their good, just like Jesus. That's chapter two. So when God presents opportunities for us to serve, whether it's him or whether it's the believers, like he rejoices that, wow, I get to serve you, which means I have an opportunity to uh, be like Jesus in this regard and to allow Jesus to transform me uh, in that regard. And then finally, you have this expression there, rejoice in the Lord in chapters three and four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So, so Paul rejoices in the Lord, right? In the Lord with reference to the Lord, meaning he rejoices in who Jesus is. And we'll get to that poem in chapter two, that he is God and he's become a human being. So who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross. And that is, that's his grounds for him being able to rejoice, even though his circumstances being prison, awaiting the executioner's acts, his circumstances are not good, but nevertheless, it doesn't stop him from rejoicing. Our problem as Christians today is that like, we often don't rejoice the way Paul did. Like when we rejoice, we often rejoice more in what God like the blessings that God gives us, right? We, we rejoice in things or in good circumstances. And that's not wrong. We ought to give thanks to God for his blessings, for whatever good circumstances or whatever things we can receive. We need to give thanks to God. But if our joy is kind of rooted or, or based in that, then what happens when the faucet of blessing is turned off, which eventually it does. It, does that mean then that our rejoicing ceases because, well, the faucet's dry. There's no more blessing. So, so really, our rejoicing needs to be shaped the way Paul rejoices, right? And so, even today in our trials and our in our pains, whatever we're going, we can rejoice that you know what God is sovereignly at work. I might not understand what he's what he's doing or how he's working, but I do know, as Jesus said, even to this day, my Father's working. Right? He doesn't take days off. And so we can rejoice in that, that he's accomplishing his will in me and around me, even though it might not feel that way. And um, so really, we, we need to learn to rejoice the way Paul rejoices, which is always with reference to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So it seems like Paul is really anchoring his joy in transcendent realities and not in what he's experiencing, right? Yeah. Exactly. These things that you list, sanctification of believers, sovereignty, opportunities to serve, and the Lord himself, those are unchanging things that happen and are available in spite of anything that I'm enduring. That's exactly it, yeah. And as you talk, I'm just reminded of the alternative is scary. If I root my joy in my life or the blessings, the faucet of blessings, like you just said, when those things go away or when it takes a turn, there goes my joy as well. That's right. And they will, right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away like they will. Sometimes by God's specific design, he will, right? Because he wants to teach us something. He wants to humble us. He wants to get us to turn our gaze and attention off the gift and to the giver. Mm. That's excellent. 
Now, like many other churches addressed in the New Testament, Philippi wasn't without its imperfections and dangers, and you mentioned a couple of those in the introduction. What are some of the threats facing these believers from inside and outside the church, and how does Paul pastor them toward stability and safety? Sure. So from the inside, the biggest danger, as I see it to this church, is their disunity. And there are signs uh, throughout the, the letter that there is this issue that Paul needed to address, even from the beginning. Right from the very beginning, when Paul gives his address to the church, one one, he says to all the saints in Philippi, uh, including the overseers and deacons. It's easy to kind of skip over that, but when you look at all of his, his other letters, it's to all the saints in Philippi, uh, to all the saints in Rome, to all the saints. It's always to all the saints, and that's it. But here, even though all means all, he goes the extra step and says, including the overseers and deacons. And so Pauline scholars think that maybe that's a little bit of a glimpse into um, perhaps there's a, a rift between the lady and the leadership or perhaps between the overseers and the deacons or maybe like a triangular rift between the lady and the, leaders and the, the overseers and deacons that kind of thing the fact that he explicitly calls them to unity in 127 and elsewhere is is another sign of this this disunity in 2 14 and 15 do all things without grumbling or complaining and in these chat, in these verses, two fourteen and fifteen, he alludes to the wilderness generation. Uh, in the Greek, the wilderness generation, which is marked and characterized by their grumbling against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, as well as against God. So don't be like them by saying, you know, don't grumble. He's implicitly saying, don't be like them. Uh, and then, of course, he'll call out two prominent ladies in chapter four, uh, verse two. I urge you, Odia, and I urge you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, to be in harmony in the Lord. And so. You have this disunity, this growing spirit of disunity that's really kind of threatening to pull the church apart at the seams. And so, and I think this 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 disunity was rooted in pride, and this pride was probably the overflow of uh, other civic pride. Uh, Philippi was it was a Roman colony, right? So by virtue of being a Roman colony, it was a prestigious city. Uh, when Rome was conquering all these cities and all these nations. They didn't turn every city. In fact, most cities, they did not flip into Roman colonies, but some cities like Philippi, which has a Greek history, they flipped it, turned it into Roman Philippi, Roman colony. So by virtue of being a Roman colony, it is now a prestigious city in the empire, right? It didn't have to pay some of the taxes that other cities do or the tariffs that other cities do. It's kind of a first city in the empire. And so you had all this civic pride as a colony, as a colony whose purpose is to image Rome, like the values of Rome, the culture of Rome. So it's quite conceivable that this, uh, this civic pride kind of splashed into the church as well. And so how does Paul address this pride issue, this disunity issue? He does it implicitly and he does it explicitly. So right off the top, he implicitly uh, addresses this issue of disunity by modeling the attitudes that they need to walk in. Right. So in, in the beginning of the letter, he models this this inclusivity. Right. He's he, to all the saints, including the overseas and deacons. And then you know, I give thanks for all of you. I, I, I have all of you in my heart. You know, you're all my partners. So this all this this inclusivity that he's, that he's modeling. Uh, and then he prays for them explicitly nine through 11 of chapter one. And he's praying that their their love and the love their their love for one another, their experience of God's love for one another might abound. Well, the answer to the prayer that your love for one another might abound is unity, right? And so he's praying the answer to that prayer is unity. So he, he begins, and then in the rest of chapter one, he, he models this gospel first attitude, 
right there. He puts the gospel first. And that's why when other people are trying to stick it to him, he doesn't fight back. He's just, you know what, the gospel, it's about the gospel, not about me. And then after addressing the, the issue implicitly, he will address it explicitly, right? So starting in 127, he'll say, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or may, may remain absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, right? So he begins to give the church these explicit exhortations to unity, He'll uphold Christ in the, in the so-called Christ team in 2, uh, 6 to 11 there as, as this example of unity, uh, this, the spirit which, with which they need to be walking in towards one another. And then in chapter four, he will explicitly again address these two prominent women in the, in the congregation that they need to agree in the Lord. And then he asks his true yoke fellow, which is probably Epaphroditus, to be a mediator to help these two ladies uh, agree to get them on the same page. So he, he invokes somebody to help them there. So from the inside, that's how he addresses this is this inside issue and danger of disunity. From the outside, uh, the biggest danger would be the false teaching of legalism. And in this false teaching, you have this elevation of obedience to the Mosaic law over and against faith in Christ. And whenever you elevate anything, whether it's the Mosaic law or anything else, when you elevate it, such that it's faith in Christ plus doing these laws, or it's doing these laws instead of faith in Christ, then that's a false gospel that can save no one. And so that's a very dangerous issue. And he addresses that kind of in a, in a sequential way in chapter three, right? So uh, the first thing he does, he, he implicitly turns these teachers' terms against them, right? In chapter three, he says, uh, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So these, this group, his rivals, these false teachers who were um, spreading their teaching in Philippi, some people call them Judaizers. They regarded, uh, some Judaizers uh, regarded Gentiles, and the church at Philippi would have been predominantly Gentile, regarded them as dogs, he regarded them as dogs. And so he turns that term against them. He's like they might regard you guys as dogs, but he's telling you, beware of the dogs. Like they're the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. So these guys are, are advocating doing the works of the law, like the good works of the law. And Paul says, no, they're, they're evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, right? So they're pushing circumcision on these Gentile believers. The word for circumcision is actually not the word that's used in verse 3. It means mutilation. So he's just kind of like, they're mutilators. They're trying to circumcise you. They're what they are, are mutilators. So he turns the terms that they would have been using, turns it against them. And then he corrects the essential thrust of their false teaching in verse three, right? In one swoop, he says, no, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So as this group is pushing for you guys to be circumcised, like, no, no, no. You guys, we are the true circumcision. As Paul said in Romans 2, circumcision is a matter of the heart. That's what matters. It's a circumcision of the heart, as, as Jeremiah prophesied. And we are that circumcision. So they're pushing for outward circumcision. No, no, we are the true circumcision. Uh, and we worship in the spirit of God. Like they're pushing the letter of the law. Well, we worship the spirit who inspired those scribes who writes the, the tablets on our hearts. We worship by and in the spirit of God, the spirit of the living God. And we glory and boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence 
in the flesh, right? So he, he just corrects in one felt swoop the, the thrust of their teaching. And then what he does is in the next section, 4 through 14, he explains or he contextualizes the gospel of Jesus as it's worked out in his own life, right? So the gospel is about recognizing that good is never good enough before God. Paul says, hey, man, in terms of the law, I'm blameless. Yeah, you're blameless. This is not good enough. It's not good enough. So our good is not good enough. It's recognizing that our spiritual bankrupts, we are spiritually bankrupt before God. Like we bring nothing to his, to the bargaining table, if you will. We need whatever tiny morsel of grace he can give us. You know, the gospel is about recognizing the necessity of God's righteousness to be right with God. Our own righteousness, as Isaiah said, is just filthy rags. We need the very God, the very righteousness of God in order to be right with God. And the gospel imparts that to us by our faith and our union uh, with Christ. The gospel is about recognizing that we're in this race towards Christ likeness and, and we never get there in this life. And whatever gains we make in this life come from God, right? So we, we stretch towards the finish line. We move towards the finish line. We're reaching, we're stretching. We're, we're, we're always looking to move forward, not fall behind, knowing ultimately that God who began a good work in us, Philippians 1, 6, he will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So we're never going to get there, become like Christ in this life. But when Christ comes back, then our bodies are transformed, right? As Paul uh, says elsewhere. So he contextualizes the gospel in his own life. And then he openly challenges the believers to follow his example and follow the example of those like him, right? So in verse 17, he'll say, brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So he challenges them. And then he explicitly rebukes the mindset of these false teachers in 18 through 21, right? Because their priorities are rooted in the earthly things, right? It's about glorification of self and status. And so rather than adopt that earthly mindset, we're to, to adopt a heavenly mindset, the things of God, knowing that it's from heaven that Jesus Christ is going to come and redeem us and transform our bodies. So that's how he addresses the, the danger from without. Now you've been a pastor and you're clearly pastoring students as well in your current post. What are some ways that you've seen perhaps today that the Judaizers, so to speak, are slipping into the church still today. That this is not just some first century problem, but it actually is rearing its head today as well in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you see that, and we would we would call it the word today, and not just today, but the longest while, I guess we would just call it legalism, right? And legalists in the church, and and how you know, I pastor, I've, I've pastored in, in a few different cities, and I've I've seen that type of legalism come in, and so things that um, like we begin to legalists begin to focus on the outside to the neglect of the heart and the inside. So as long as you are doing certain things and as long as you're being, being seen as doing these righteous things, these godly things, then all is good. When in fact, in oftentimes these righteous looking things are devoid of heart and inward the person is wasting away and wasting away not in the sense of god i need you but in the sense of as long as i do these things then i'm good and they neglect the heart and god has always been about the heart and so it produces this plastic surfacey obedience that is without really that heart that that the world wants to see the world has seen enough of plastic 
Christians, you know, who appear to do the right thing, but then when push comes to shove, they're no different than me or you or I. Uh, and so I've, I've seen, I've seen it that, that disconnect between the outward and inward. You see it sometimes when people start to um, push conformity, not to Christ, that actually they're pushing more uniformity mm. rather than conformity to Christ. So the idea of, you know, dressing a certain way or listening to certain music or that type of thing, which becomes a new shibboleth, if you will, like this is what you need to do to be approved, at least approved by us as, you know, Christian leaders, that kind of thing. And so it does, it does rear its head in, in different ways. And, um, you know, ultimately we have to push our people and exhort our people and teach our people that, yeah, there are things that we need to do outward things that are expected of us, but we can't simply divorce those things from the heart. If a heart is not, ultimately the Christian ought to be that person who does these righteous things because they love and desire to do these righteous things. That is just their burning desire to do these things. And if that's not the case, then the mature Christian ought to recognize, man, I really need to grow up. I, I, I need to do this, but I recognize that it's not being done with the heart that God wants it to be done. Lord, please help my heart. Please grow me. The mistake is we just think, well, as long as this is done, it doesn't matter what's going on in here. And that's what we see mm-hmm. all too often in too many churches, evangelical churches too. How would you pastor me if I said, you know, I'm a, Dr. Baxter, I'm a recovering legalist. I grew up in a legalistic church and I want to be free of this. But in my weak moments, I find myself drifting back toward measuring the fruit rather than tending to the root of that love in my heart that is supposed to produce those righteousness. Mm. What encouragement would you give to me? Things that I can do practically to start cultivating that soft heartedness that produces the righteousness? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the simplest way to start is is through prayer and specifically not just prayer but you know what prayer god god uh, heal my heart god grow my heart there's a prayer in ephesians 3 paul's second prayer in the letter and it talks about christ being formed in our heart right and so the idea that um you know that we grow up in our love of in our experience of god's love for us like we often think or or pray about you know god grow my love grow my passion and then there's nothing that's that's fine but ultimately especially according to paul's prayer in ephesians 3 he's not praying that god would grow your love for him he's praying that you would become more aware of god's love for you and i think a lot a lot a lot of us we don't recognize that and so in praying for god heal my heart help my heart grow my heart but that but Lord, grow my experience of your love that I would really know, not just from the head, but from the heart, how much, how high, how long, how deep, how long is your love for me? That's excellent. Yeah, it's hard to believe that as we grow in that understanding that that would not in turn affect the way that we serve him and pursue righteousness or the presentation or the, um, yeah, the pursuit of righteousness in this life, yeah. clearly. Well, let's talk about the poem at the center of this letter that you mentioned earlier in 2, 5, or 6 to 11 there. Can you summarize for us its content and its significance, both to the structure of this epistle and to our understanding of the person and work of Christ? Sure. So let me start just with the genre, the poem. Um, In terms of genre, like Pauline scholars call 6 to 11 the Christ hymn, and they call it the Christ hymn because Basically, from one one to two five is all prose, and then from two 
you could say 2-9, we'll get to that in a bit, uh, but certainly from 2-12 to the rest of the letter is all prose. But in that section, you have poetry. It's harder to see in your English, uh, but it's, it's easier to see in the Greek. It's, it's a poem. And whereas we as moderns, we recite poetry, roses are red, violets are blue, the ancients, they sung their poetry. And so scholars and Pauler's scholars believe that this was an, an ancient hymn. In terms of its own structure, this song, if you will, breaks down into three stanzas. So the first stanza is verses six to seven A, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's the first stanza. The second stanza is verse seven B to eight, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then the third is nine through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Debate exists as to 9 to 11. Is 9 to 11 part of the song, or is it simply Paul's conclusion to that song, to that hymn? And I've always believed that it was part of the song, but recently, very recently, I've kind of shifted that I think the song proper, the hymn proper, the poem proper is 6 to 8, and that 9 to 11 is Paul's conclusion to this, you know, he says, therefore, which isn't really a poetic uh, the way you would introduce poetry, therefore, and then he has these other Greek clauses that sound more like he's making an argument based on this poem. And, and it's also, it, it, it's somewhat disruptive. It doesn't have the balance that the other two stanzas do. So one stanza is not like the others. I think the third one is not like the others. Uh, so I think this, the poem proper, the hymn proper is six to eight. In terms of its, its place, six to eight's place in the wider argument of Philippians, and it is the centerpiece. Like the whole panel, literary panel is from 127 to 218. And the exact dead center of it is six to eight. And so the structure of Paul's argument, he's like building or climaxing uh, to the poem, right? So 127, he starts, be unified, right? I, I read that one, be unified. And then 212, this is why you can be unified, like positively speaking. Uh, and then two, three to four, uh, this is how you can be unified, like negatively speaking, don't be like this, don't be like that. And then you got two, five to eight. So think this way, the way Jesus thought, which is, and then he has a poem and then his conclusion to the poem. So nine through 11 is incentive, right? Therefore God exalts Jesus because of what he did, because of his, of his humiliation, which is a biblical principle. And Jesus himself said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he humbles himself here will be exalted. So there you have this incentive and then two, uh, 12 through 18, you have these three commands that come forth from the hymn, like therefore, or so that. So work out your salvation, which is an appeal to mutual humility. Don't be a grumbler, complainer, right? And like, so don't be like Israel of the wilderness and rejoice with me. Like Paul says, rejoice with him in serving one another. So that's kind of how the poem uh, falls within the wider uh, literary, in the argument that Paul is making there. Uh, and then in terms of its significance, so that the hymn extols the humility of Christ, the humiliation of the incarnation. Like Jesus begins who being in very nature God. So Jesus is almighty God. But in his humility, he descends. Right? He lays aside his privileges. He lays aside his entitlements that are all his because he exists as very nature God. 
He lays him aside in order to become a human being, right? So he lowers himself to become a human being and he doesn't stop there. He lowers himself even further to become a servant, right? And the word for servant there, it refers to the servant that has absolutely no rights, like no, so it goes from having all rights as God to having no rights as a servant, but then it doesn't stop there. His descent goes even further, whereby he dies on a cross, right? So he doesn't die a noble death, like protecting somebody in battle or natural causes. He dies uh, in extreme agony because we know that the Romans invented crucifixion, the most extreme form of torture to be used on their enemies. So horrible. Romans thought that execution was, that crucifixion was, that it was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen. So I mean, think about that. You, you could have assassinated Caesar. <laughs> You're not going to die by crucifixion because that's even too bad for you. Right. So he dies in, in extreme agony. He dies in shame because unlike what you see in movies and in portraits, he would have hung on the cross naked. Right. And so he's, he has bodily waste going for all to see. So he dies in abject humiliation on the cross and shame. And then he dies under God's curse because that's what Paul says. Galatians three, quoting Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree referring to Christ. Christ is cursed. He dies under God's curse. So we have this extolling of the humility of Christ. And in the incarnation, Jesus actually lives a countercultural life because he's descending, right? He's in very nature God, but he descends to the rock bottom in the first century and even today, right? It's about being socially mobile up. You do what you can do, get whatever assets you can, get whatever job you can, make whatever network of relationship you can. Why? So that you can move up and have a better life today while we're fighting to move up jesus has chosen to move down and descend to the very rock bottom so that's a significant that is the quintessential example that paul lifts up as to to address this this unity issue think this way which is also in christ jesus and then boom you have this the humiliation of the incarnation that we're to walk in correct me if i'm going too far here but it seems like all of these topics that Paul brings up in Philippians and in, in his entire corpus, but things like joy in the face of suffering, unity, don't grumble, follow Paul as he follows Jesus, all of these things, just like that hymn is at the center of this book, so that reality is at the center of all of the Christian life, is it not? Yeah, well, absolutely. It is at the reality of the Christian life. And so because these are ours in Christ, and 2-4 begins, uh, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, right? And the, uh, the New Americans and others translations translate that condition of the Greek as an if, but really it's a, it's a since, right? So he's not saying, well, if there's any encouragement, and for some of you, there might be, but for others, there's not. These are all like what we have since there's encouragement, since there's consolation, since. So you have these realities that are ours in Christ, and then from those realities, flow the imperatives right because of this we can therefore do that because of this we can therefore uh speak this way or, or react this way because of these realities that we have uh, in christ and our union with him so in light of that what does paul mean when he says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me so that that scripture text on Steph Curry's shoe, you mean? That, that's <laughs> sure, I didn't know that, but I believe you. Yeah, yeah. So I can make all three pointers through Christ who strengthens me. So <laughs> that's a good question. And the simple answer 
is let the let the text, the context tell you what that means, right? And so what he's saying there, he's not saying that, you know what, I can get an A in Greek through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, yeah, yeah, but but that's not what he's talking about. He specifically is very explicit. He's talking about living in abundance and living like in prosperity and living in need. And whether he's living in abundance, and Paul says, and I have lived in abundance. Because as a, as a Pharisee, he would have been, depending up, at, at worst, he would have been middle class. Like he's not going to be lower class. He might not have been upper class, like say the Sadducees and the priests, the priesthood, but he would have made a fine living. He was a son of Pharisees. So he'd come from some means. So he knows what prosperity is, but then he knows what lack thereof is. And he, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about that, having nothing and being on the run and being stranded in the oceans, but whether in abundance, where you might be tempted to forget about God, because, well, you know, I've done so well in life thus far, or in absence, in poverty, where you might be tempted to curse God because life's not going the way I want, he's learned contentment, right? He can be content in either situation. And so that's really what he's in the, in the contentment. Notice he talks about learning contentment. So it's something you actually have to learn, mm -hmm. which is really encouraging that he didn't just come. He had yeah. to learn it. So that means if I'm not being content at one level, you know, I don't have to be so hard on myself because well, Paul had to learn it. So therefore I will have to learn it as well. He learned contentment, but he learned it through the power of God who strengthens him to enable him to, uh, to be content regardless of his circumstances. Well, you just deflated all my superpowers. That was <laughs> the text I went to. <laughs> it is amazing though. You read that text and you realize that what he's talking about there, this contentment in spite of all circumstances. Mm -hmm. And some of the circumstances he lists are pretty extreme. Yeah, absolutely. I have to admit that that is supernatural. If I was to be content in all of those circumstances, that has to be Christ strengthening me to do that. Oh, absolutely. I agree completely. Like, like, you know, when we hear about, you know, I've read people who are undergoing extreme, like persecution, seeing their loved ones killed in front of them. And yet as they're about to face the executioner's acts or, or something like that, that they can like sing praise to God, kind of how Paul and Silas were doing that in Acts 16 and chains uh, and likings like it, it, only God can do that. Well, what would you say is the main thrust of Philippians, Dr. Baxter, your elevator pitch? If you had to boil it down to a single purpose, what would it be? Right. So uh, one of my mentors at seminary, D.A. Carson, he, he wrote a nice little book on Philippians. And he, he talked about Philippians, uh, kind of the chief thrust of Philippians is that it's a call to maturity, mm. right? To sanctification, right? So maturity, meaning becoming spiritually mature, sanctification, becoming like Christ. That's, and I think he's, basically right i would kind of nuance that a little bit and i would put it this way that kind of the elevator pitch is paul is telling the church to grow up so that they can get along hmm. right to grow up to become like christ to become spiritually mature obviously through him who strengthens me so that you can get along so that you can be a unified body right because as you are a unified body the people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different creeds and ethnicities can come together because they're oneness in Christ and get along, like that's a witness to the world. And the world is drawn to that because the world can't experience that. 
Hmm. Unity in the world is based on something, you know, we're all rich or we're all on the same hockey team or we're all this. And that's once that dissipates, then you're no longer unified. Hmm. But the church is different because of him who strengthens us. How has God used Philippians in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? It's, it's helped me gain a better perspective in, in getting along with, with people in the church. Because sometimes, and you're a pastor, you know that you can encounter some, I would call, prickly people in the church. And prickly people, by definition of their prickliness, they're not easy to get along with. And what Paul has taught me through Philippians is that God has sovereignly placed people like that in my life for my sanctification, right? To, he's using that person to shape me and never feels good, but to shape me, to make me more like Jesus. That's ultimately the sum total purpose of Christians is to become like Jesus. And so that is one tiny means that God uses to shape us. Uh, and so it's really helped me gain a better perspective the book has and helped me get along with uh, some folk in, in churches. That's great. Well, thanks again for all the time you've graciously given us today, Dr. Baxter, and helping us understand Philippians a little bit better. You're welcome. Anytime. Thanks, Josiah. Appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.